Welcome to Yale Cancer Center Answers with your hosts, Drs. Anise Chagpar, Susan Higgins, and Stephen Gore. Dr. Chagpar is Associate Professor of Surgical Oncology and Director of the Breast Center at Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven. Dr. Higgins is Professor of Therapeutic Radiology and of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences. And Dr. Gore is Director of Hematological Malignancies at Smilo and an expert on myelodysplastic syndromes. Yale Cancer Center Answers features weekly conversations about the research, diagnosis, and treatment of cancer. And if you'd like to join the conversation, you can submit questions and comments to canceranswers at yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. Tonight, you'll hear a conversation about health care and cancer with Dr. Howard Foreman. Dr. Foreman is Professor of Diagnostic Radiology, Economics, and Public Health for the Yale School of Management. Here's Dr. Anise Chagpar. So I have got to tell our audience that I have been dying to do this interview for like the last five years that I've been hosting this show. Um, Howie, uh, for those of you who don't know, um, was one of my professors as I just finished my MBA at the School of Management last year. And he is a an expert in healthcare economics and where this country is going in terms of healthcare affordability. So let's start there, Howie. Everybody says that healthcare costs are spiraling out of control. Is that true? Number one. And number two, why is that? So I don't know that they're spiraling out of control, but certainly for the last several decades, healthcare costs have risen at rates above the growth of the overall economy, which means that they're taking up an ever larger piece of the overall economic pie in this country. And that's true for a lot of other things as well. That includes things like iPhones and flat panel TVs. And so the fact that something is growing at a somewhat unsustainable rate, particularly in the short run, is not in and of itself a terrible thing. And particularly when we look at something like healthcare, we may, in fact, want to dedicate more and more resources to improving the quality of our lives, the length of, the, of our lives, and the quality and length of those that we love and, and like around us. So in and of itself, spending on healthcare is not so such a bad thing. The question we have to ask ourselves is, are we getting the value for our spending at the same level that we are when we buy an iPhone or buy another good or service? And the answer there is more mixed. There are certain aspects of healthcare in this country and, and globally for which we're getting enormous bang for the buck. We're making incredible um, advances and people are clearly deriving benefit. We see life expectancy advancing. We see a declining infant mortality rate. rate. Uh, we see uh, areas of, of healthcare that are dramatically improved certain cancers that killed people a few decades ago now are curable. Uh, so there's some good news. The bad news is that when we compare ourselves to our peer uh, developed nations, our outcome measures are not nearly at the top, and yet our spending is at the top and far and away above those of even the closest uh, of our developed nation peers, such as England, such as the UK, such as Germany, such as Canada, and so on. And so the value that we're getting seems to be lower than what we would expect given what we're spending on it. 
Add to that the fact that most of healthcare is paid for by somebody else. And by that, I mean that your employer is paying for much of your healthcare when you're employed. And when you're unemployed or elderly or disabled, the federal or state governments are paying for your healthcare. And that means it impacts all of our uh, taxes and all of our uh, essential burdens on our overall compensation. That diminishes our ability to take home wages and be able to spend it on other things. The combination of those issues means that there are struggles and real challenges that we face in terms of healthcare affordability. Because your point is quite good in the sense that, you know, while there have been dramatic improvements in cancer care, for example, and and other things, those benefits are seen across the world. Uh, You know, you look at at cancer mortality rates in Canada or the UK or Germany or Australia, they're comparable to what we have here in the States. But we spend far more. So why is that? Why are we spending more than all of these other countries? Is it because most of these other countries, developed nations, have universal health care? And we, um, even with the Affordable Care Act, don't. Yeah, so some of it is the unique structure of our country and the way we deliver health care. We take a lot of pride in the fact that we have a primarily private delivery system, even if a lot of the financing comes from public sources. And we also recognize the fact that uh, we are a leader in innovation. And so we invest a lot in innovation and we are the first innovators in a lot of areas. And we're willing to absorb some of the upfront costs of that and allow other countries with a delay to take our, our novel technologies at a lower cost over time. Some call this a free rider effect where other nations are able to take advantage of our intellectual property that we've developed um, and then be able to acquire it at a lower cost after the technology is already diffused through the United States and some of the fixed costs have already been uh, taken on. Um, But some of it also has to do with um, the unique nature of this country. We were founded on libertarian principles. Despite the fact that in the Northeast, we may may see things somewhat differently across the nation. There's still a very, very strong libertarian bent, a very conservative bent, you know, an an ethos that says, keep your government hands out of my ex. Um, And because of that, we really do not allow for the active government intrusion in pricing to the degree that other nations do. Not to say that we don't have government pricing on a lot of, of, of things, but to the degree in, in comparison with a lot of other nations where literally fixed pricing uh, is put in place by the government, by a national health service, we don't do that. And so we allow drug prices to be set by the market to a great degree. And sometimes those drug prices are very, very expensive. So let's talk about drug prices now that you've brought it up. I mean, there was a very interesting article that came out not so long ago um, that that actually hit the lay media that was talking about cancer drug prices in particular and the fact that these are increasing and that the increasing cost was not related to novelty and was not particularly related to effectiveness, but was really related to whatever the market could bear. And when you talk about something that has the emotional charge of cancer, um, people will often pay whatever it costs, even at the expense of going bankrupt, which happens a lot in this country due to medical costs. So how do we how do we justify that? So 
part of the problem, I'll come back to justifying a little bit later, but part of the problem that we face is that we have a very disjointed healthcare delivery system, and most people would even put system in quotes. We don't really have a healthcare delivery system in this country. We have a lot of healthcare providers, we have healthcare financers, we have patients, we have clinicians, and all, all um, different stakeholders out there. And their incentives are not always perfectly aligned. And when it comes to prescription drugs, particularly in the chemotherapy area, it's a very good example of how poorly aligned they are. Physicians may make money off of certain prescriptions that they provide if they provide them in office, uh, particularly intravenous drugs, drugs that cannot be self-administered. Physicians and providers, hospitals may make actual money off the delivery of um, certain chemotherapy drugs, and they may make no money off of oral uh, drugs. Uh, at the same time. And while I don't think that anybody, no oncologist, no hospital, no provider out there is actually actively saying, I choose to give the drug that makes me the most money, if you frame the question a little bit differently, you can see where the problem arises. If I'm a physician in practice who is making money off of the the totality of my cancer care, which includes diagnosis, monitoring, staging, consultation, and ultimately treatment, and I'm making X number of dollars, and some of that money is being paid to me through my administration of chemotherapy drugs, and somebody comes along and says to me, you know, we think that you should consider providing this care using an orally administered agent that happens to be cheaper and it's even easier for the patient. Um, And overall, it's going to save a lot of money. And it's not going to cost, it's not going to save the patient per se that much money because they're maybe paying a copay, but it's certainly going to save the insurance company, the employer, Medicare, so on, some amount of money. You know, I may look at that and say, yep, that's a really good idea. And then if you tell me at the same time that it may diminish my revenue by 20 or 30%, it's going to cause me to pause and think, why am I making this move? Is this move really in the overall best interest of the patient? Maybe the patient is doing very well right now. Patient's not going to be saving any money. Why am I actually making this move just to save money for an insurance company? Is that why I would want to do that? And so the incentives aren't really aligned. What we're hoping to see over the next you know, a few decades, hopefully a few years, but maybe it'll take a few decades, is a transformation so that that the amount of money being paid for the care of the patient is either capitated or bundled, depending on how you look at it, so that a patient will receive the best possible care and the provider will look at the overall sum of care, maximize quality, minimize cost for the patient, for the insurance company and otherwise, and make decisions that really are best aligned for the patient, not necessarily trying to maximize income for one stakeholder or another. And chemotherapy drugs is kind of easy fodder for that because there are a lot of drugs that are well compensated and for which providers can make money off of. And there are other drugs for which there is no compensation to the provider. But this applies to all of healthcare as well. So when you say we hope to see these changes over the next few years, the next few decades, is this wrapped up in the Affordable Care Act? Yeah, so certainly what we're seeing as in the, in the first few years of the Affordable Care Act are pilot programs that include bundled payments for things like orthopedic surgeries, bundled payments for um, cardiovascular disease, for congestive heart failure, for asthma, and so on coming along. And we're hoping to see you know, the alignment of incentives and to get 
you know, quality maximized, cost minimized, and really outcomes improved overall over time with those very simple bundles. Those are probably the simplest bundles you can come up with because, you know, a replacement of a hip can be really, um, you know, it's a very similar population. Everybody's getting the hip. Everybody is a similar type of patient. There's only a little bit of variation. Cancer patients are a little bit more complicated. There are some cancers that are much more common than others, but even the most common cancers still require a lot of individualized therapy. And so they're a little bit more complicated in terms of bundling. But I think most of us believe that that, that will come over time and that it will really be in the patient's best interest uh, in the long run, not just in terms of cost, mind you, but really getting health systems to compete on quality and that the way they deliver care and maximizing consumer uh, you know, identification of um, satisfaction. But how would consumers actually look at that? Because one would argue that one of the big problems is transparency. I mean, you have no idea the quality of care that you get at center X versus center Y, doctor X versus doctor Y, let alone the treatment regimens, as you say, which can be very varied, and you're faced with a cancer diagnosis. How, how do they think that that is going to play out? So I still would call myself a quality measure skeptic, somebody who is not you know, completely bought into the fact that we can easily measure quality, that we can easily, you know, figure out how to risk adjust the group and decide that this group of cancer patients actually starts off being sicker than that group of cancer patients so that we treat them differently when we when we look at these measures. I'm still somewhat of a skeptic, but I have been incredibly impressed with the pro- progress made over the last 20 years in terms of quality metrics that are coming along in all the different areas of healthcare. And, and I am confident confident that in the next few years, as the electronic medical record becomes much more accessible, as researchers have access not to a 500 or 800-bed hospital, but might have access to thousands and thousands of hospital beds in a region or even across the nation, that we'll start to come up with ways of truly looking at a population of breast cancer patients or a population of colon cancer patients and so on, and know what are the best practices and how should we judge the health centers that are providing that care to know whether they're providing the best possible care. And if they're not, encouraging them through both financial incentives as well as feedback to become better and better so that they become best in class. We're going to pick up much more about this conversation and how patients are going to get actually involved in the mix of improving health care and financing it after we take a quick medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more information about health care and patients with cancer with my guest, Dr. Howie Foreman. The American Cancer Society estimates that there will be 75,000 new cases of melanoma in the U.S. this year, with over 1,000 of these patients living in Connecticut. While melanoma accounts for only about 4% of skin cancer cases, it causes the most skin cancer deaths. Early detection is the key, and when detected early, melanoma is easily treated and highly curable. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers such as Yale Cancer Center and at Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven to test innovative new treatments for melanoma. The goal of the Specialized Programs of Research Excellence, SPORE, in Skin Cancer Grant is to better understand the biology of skin cancer with a focus on discovering targets that will lead to improved diagnosis and treatment. This has been a Medical Minute brought to you as a public service by Yale Cancer Center and Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven. 
More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Center Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Howie Foreman. We're talking about healthcare, where healthcare is going in this country, who's paying for it, and how it affects all of us. So, Howie, right before the break, we were talking a little bit about healthcare costs and how you made the point that really healthcare is other people's money. Um, it's borne by, you know, the insurance companies and the employers um, and the government for those who are, you know, on Medicare or Medicaid. But ultimately, isn't it borne by all of us? And so shouldn't everybody be concerned about health care costs in this country? Because at the end of the day, um, the employers are paying for things out of what could otherwise be employee salaries. And the government is paying for it out of taxes. Absolutely. And I don't mean to minimize the fact that we are both individual healthcare consumers for ourselves as well as bearing, bearing the burden for the entire healthcare system. If I have a major illness, I'm going to bear some of that cost. Everybody else is going to bear the majority of my costs for that illness. So I don't mean to minimize at all what this means. And I think every healthcare consumer out there benefits when we figure out ways to deliver higher quality care at a lower cost, when we're able to improve access. One of the challenges we face today is that even with the Affordable Care Act in place, we still believe that there's probably 30 plus million people that are uninsured and and at least 10, 15 million people that are underinsured out there right now, people that really do not have access to the type of high quality health care that we believe everybody should have access to. If we can hold down health care costs, more and more people find it affordable to be able to access the system by buying health insurance, and that lowers the uninsurance rate. So there are many reasons why every one of us individually and collectively should be able to rally around the idea that holding down healthcare cost growth, not necessarily cutting healthcare costs, but holding down healthcare cost growth is absolutely in our individual and national interest. So, you know, some people would argue that, you know, that's the other people's problem. If, if you're uninsured, um, it's because you didn't save enough. Just like if you uh, get cancer uh, because you smoke, that's your problem. How, explain to me how your health care costs, if you're uninsured, affects me if I've got insurance. Well, certainly we know that health care is like no other industry in that there is true, real cost shifting going on at the hospital level, at the physician level, at even the medical device and pharmaceutical level. People that are uninsured are getting access to our healthcare system and the very high cost of the system, but somebody's bearing that cost. And ultimately, it is the well-insured person who's bearing the full cost. At a hospital like Yale Haven Hospital, a commercial insurer may pay more than twice as much as the actual cost of a hospital bed, not because Yale Haven Hospital is being able to you know, make Microsoft-type uh, margins, but rather because they have to be able to pay for the many beds that are filled by patients who are completely uninsured or mostly uninsured. So we have real cost shifting going on all over the system. And within the hospital, it's most obvious. We see Medicare and Medicaid patients that are paid through federal and state governments at slightly below cost. We have uninsured patients that are paying uh, somewhere close to 0% of total cost. And so you must have commercial insurance 
uh, the patients that are typically employed by a large employer paying for their care at well above the real cost of care. So when I, who have good insurance at this point, use our healthcare system, I'm forced to pay a higher cost because somebody has to pay for the uninsured patients. Because I remember when the whole Affordable Care Act debate was going on and people were saying, how are we going to pay for this? It's great that we're going to have all of these people have access, which is a a noble goal um, and a social good. But ultimately, somebody's going to have to pay for it with higher taxes or, you know, cutting other government programs. Um, Many people argued, well, we don't want our taxes to be increased to pay for that but ultimately you're paying for it anyways absolutely i mean the the you know it always sounds good to say uh, you know, somebody posed, I believe, to Ron Paul, who's a physician and who was running for the Republican nomination uh, in 2012, somebody posed to him the question of what would you do if a patient were to come to the emergency room with a gunshot wound or something? I don't remember the exact scenario. And somebody in the audience just said, would you, you know, and they asked him, would you just let the person die if they don't have insurance and can't pay for it? And somebody in the audience, you know, yelled out, yes, of course, you should. And I think God. Ron Paul, to, you know, to his credit, clearly said it's it's not that easy and nobody does that there's no place that i've seen in the healthcare system where the high cost uninsured patients which you know most of the uninsured aren't accessing the system for low cost things they're only accessing the system for catastrophic illnesses of one type or another or trauma they're going to access the system. Someone has to pay for them. None of us that are in the healthcare field are going to turn away a person who is critically ill, critically wounded, or otherwise needs acute care. We will ask how to pay for it afterwards. And so the costs are always being borne by the system, and we have to figure out how to pay for it after the fact. How can patients get more engaged, involved in looking at costs and figuring out value and quality and cost containment? What, what, what do patients do. So I think up until 10, 15 years ago, they could do almost nothing. Really, word of mouth, talk to your friends, talk to physicians that you might know to get their advice, but really nothing. And really, even physicians were in a very difficult position because it was very hard to know who were the high-quality cancer centers, who were the high-quality cardiovascular centers. Uh, you know, you could rely as much as you want on advertising, but that only goes so far. I think now we are seeing through hospital compare on the Medicare website, through the quality metrics that the federal government releases on a regular basis, um, and through quality metrics that are being developed even today, that we're actually able to, to identify what are the best practices and who is adhering to those best practices. And then similarly, on insurance companies' websites, as well as on Medicare, again, we're seeing what costs are. We've never had a good sense of costs before. Increasingly, Aetna, Humana, uh, United Health Group, and other major insurance companies are looking at this as an opportunity to educate the public. When you had a $250 deductible, you didn't care so much about what your cost of care was going to be because you knew you were only at risk for $250. When you have a $5,000 deductible, or in some cases close to a $10,000 deductible, you become very, very... um, 
keen to know what things are going to cost you. You ask questions even before you go visit a physician or a hospital. And that's changing the way healthcare is delivered because hospitals are now more prepared than ever to, to um, tell you what costs are going to be and to make that transparent to you in advance. And if they're not already, they will be over the next few years. Is that another thing that the Affordable Care Act is going to do? Yes. So without a doubt, I think some of the changes in the Affordable Care Act, either very directly through various types of sunshine laws where they actually shine light on, you know, what is going on behind the scenes, but as well, the incentives that have been imposed on insurance companies, on individuals and employers have really forced everybody to work together to make prices more transparent, make quality more transparent. When Medicare is penalizing hospitals for readmission rates, when Medicare is penalizing hospitals for for having hospital-acquired conditions, you can't help but think that all of that data is going to start coming out more and more. It might not be like Yelp, but it's going to come close. And you can imagine a time in five or 10 years where something similar to Yelp will be out there for every consumer to know who their physician is and how he or she ranks, who their hospital is and how they rank, and so on, and try to come up with the best information the same way we make decisions about purchasing a car or what restaurant we go to. Yeah, and one would think that as that process unfolds, just by sheer market forces, that, that the cream will rise to the top and essentially the poor quality providers will cease to exist. Yeah, I mean, obviously we want all providers to continue to exist. We want them to elevate the level of their quality. I mean, we, I think most of us in medicine believe that that the people who've made it out, who've made it into practice, ha- clearly have the competencies and capability to practice medicine. And I think that all hospitals do strive to be high quality providers, but they do need a nudge sometimes and they do need incentives. And I think these are the types of incentives that are going to cause smaller hospitals to realize that they might not be able to go it alone and they're going to have to find a bigger uh, partner that is able to help them advance their mission. And I think for physicians, the same thing is true, that they're going to have to be able to raise their game, raise their quality, and lower their costs to be competitive in an environment that demands it. So let's talk a little bit. You know, we're heading into an election year, and the Affordable Care Act has been one of those sources of key contention uh, between political parties. Tell us a little bit about where that that contention exists. Uh, What are the good things and the bad things about the Affordable Care Act? And then regardless of how the election shakes out, where you think the Affordable Care Act is going to be in the next 5, 10, 15 years? So first of all, one has to remember that the Affordable Care Act really was, did embrace very conservative Republican principles. It's it's to the right, as we say, more conservative than the alternative to Clinton health care reform. Uh, it is to the right of even Romney's health care reform in Boston, in Massachusetts. So I think fundamentally, there's nothing necessarily wrong with the Affordable Care Act that Republicans and Democrats couldn't get their hands around and be very happy about. It became an unfortunately partisan battle. You had a president that was elected with a very strong mandate, had uh, complete control in many ways of the Senate and the House, and was able to move legislation through without Republican help. And Republicans who felt that this was something that they could run against in their campaign in 2012, and they did so quite effectively, shifting the balance of power in the House and the Senate uh, in 2012 and 2014. So from a political standpoint, Republicans have used it in a in you know in a 
political way successfully. But I think now is the time that both parties have to sit together and, and look at the, the small problems with it. And there are definitely small issues that can be resolved and fixed. Some of them have to do with just regulations. Some of them have to do with how taxes are assessed and so on. Um, but also look at it from the point of view of cost. It, it probably would not have been a $938 billion bill if some of the Republicans had come along on this bill. It, you know, when you have a bill that is one party, it does tend to be to one extreme or the other. So I think the bill can be revisited and revised. I don't think the bill is going to, I don't think it's even possible that the bill can be repealed. We think that there's somewhere north of 16 million people that are newly insured that would not have been insured if not for this bill passing. We see healthcare delivery improving in so many ways. You can't undo these things. And we see this as being a reasonably well-financed bill. It's not expanding our federal budget deficit. So one would not want to take this apart, and I don't think the Republicans ever would. I think the likelihood is that this bill will get tinkered with after the next presidential election, and the tinkering will be in a favorable way, not looking to just disband it. Um, and I think that we can look forward to continued improvement, hopefully contained costs over time, and both parties coming together to see health care improve for the country. Dr. Howard Foreman is Professor of Diagnostic Radiology, Economics, and Public Health for the Yale School of Management. We invite you to share your questions and comments. You can send them to canceranswers at yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. And as an additional resource, archived programs are available in both audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We'd like to thank the Yale Cancer Center for providing production support for this program, and we'd also like to thank Renee Gaudet, Emily Fenton, and the staff of the Yale Broadcast and Media Center. I'm Bruce Barber, hoping you'll join us again next Sunday evening at 6 for another edition of Yale Cancer Center Answers here on WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.